You are listening to the Heavenly Chi podcast, episode number 20. Today is part two of a discussion on different dietary approaches that your patients may need. Hey everybody, I'm Claire Pyers. And I'm Fee Gitchum. Today we're talking about various nutritional and diet approaches that your patients may benefit from. In episode 19, we talked about the trifecta of suffering, gluten, dairy and sugar, as well as bad fats. Today we're going to work our way through paleo, autoimmune paleo, low histamine and low tyramine dietary approaches. The Heavenly Chi podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment and professional development. Show notes and continuing professional development resources are found at www.heavenlychipodcast.com. You can add Heavenly Chi podcast to your favourite RSS feed or iTunes. We're also on Stitcher. You can follow us on Facebook. All links are in the show notes. We hope you enjoy today's show. Hi, everybody. Thank you for joining us again. We love talking about food. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We barely started. So today we're going to attempt to cover paleo and autoimmune paleo and what situations you're going to make those distinctions of those diets for with what kind of patients and who may really need to look at cutting out the high histamine foods and the high tyramine foods. Mm, So starting with paleo, I think paleo has definitely gained a lot of traction in the last few years Uh, and there's good reason to it. I Mm. think there's many good reasons to it, but there's also many different ways to eat if you're eating paleo. Yes. And I think on those two ways, you'll hear a couple of different perspectives from Claire and I today. Mm. Well, why don't you start with your way? Okay. So what I really love about paleo is that it's grain-free and that it focuses on eating foods as they arrive from nature. Mm. So it's a really great way to present a diet that tells people what not to eat, Mm. what's not actually a food. Yeah. Um, and that really makes it simple because before being able to use the paleo umbrella, uh, it was much more difficult to explain to people, you know, don't eat this because it's processed and don't eat that because it's all put together from ingredients that aren't all necessarily foods. And just having this approach makes a lot of sense. And I think it makes a lot of sense that this is how human beings ate probably for a very large proportion. I don't know how many years. Do you know? Um, a long time. Yeah. <laughs> so more than 20,000 like years. Like 100,000 yeah. years yeah. since we evolved from apes. A really long time that humans were eating paleo and it's only in the last 100 years that we've started to eat all these processed foods and Mm. have all these food chemicals and additives and being able to combine ingredients that are not exactly foods with ingredients that are foods to make some end product that's supposed to be a food but is not really nutritionally dense and it doesn't really have a benefit. Mm. Um, but it's easy to access or maybe it's cheap or tasty yeah. or yeah yeah so I think you know paleo is a really great foundation that both of us work with a lot with most patients mm. um, and I just want to add one little note that is if we look at what was the human being eating before paleo and so this is really tricky to say whether or not this is true or accurate or 
um, is the research complete and and obviously we're dealing with ancient ancient archaeological remnants for this type of research I think as well as some new genetic research and as far as I know my research has led me to understand that the human digestive tract which is very similar to our closest relatives the monkey group I'll call them the monkey group I don't know if that's the correct <laughs> the monkeys name the monkeys <laughs> all of them um and the apes and and whatnot um that that was a predominantly fruitarian diet mm. prior to that. And this will come up later when we start talking about cleansers mm. as to why do certain types of, for example, fruit cleansers, why do they work and why are they good for our body? So, And I think, I think fish, we started eating fish and that was the tipping point for our, the growing of our intelligence and our self-awareness. Right. And that's how we got into modern-day human. Right. The, the yeah the modern day human lineage yeah. we branched away from the monkeys yeah so there's this beautiful relationship I see between going back to what are our whole food diets and understanding the purpose of the fruit cleansers versus the purpose of the paleo umbrella mm. as a diet um, and I personally use them both and knowing when yeah and with who to use them is really important yeah, and I think a lot of people, um, a lot of people feel really good when they go on to paleo, specifically because when you're avoiding all grains, which essentially you're doing that on paleo, um, and uh, I mean there's further distinctions, and some people talk about a primal approach, which is similar to what you're talking about, which is more, um, you know, going for that more unprocessed. Paleo is not necessarily un unprocessed I think there's a lot of people that do paleo quite poorly or not 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 that they're doing it poorly but you, you can do paleo in a really inflammatory way mm. um, but a lot of people feel good on paleo because they have problems with gluten or they're just you know they're just reducing the amount of pesticides that they're exposed to a lot of our grain crops are heavily sprayed um, and if you're not eating organic but you just make the switch to paleo, then I think that reduces a lot of gastrointestinal distress that people have going on in the background and a lot of problems clear up for them. And it doesn't necessarily need to be a permanent long-term switch, but some people, they feel so good about it, you know, that they um, kind of adopt it as a little bit of a, um, almost a bit of a religion for some people. Um, you know, people who are really into CrossFit, they're all into paleo and... Um, yeah, I think it's not necessarily good for everyone all the time. Mm. But it does also really increase the amount of vegetables and whole yeah. foods that people are eating. Absolutely. And, and if you're, even if you're not doing paleo, I think just if you have a, a benchmark of aiming to get six handfuls of coloured veggies a day into your diet, like that's two heaped dinner plates full of vegetables and if you're having that amount of plant material you're not going to have enough room to be eating your breads and twisties and <laughs> chocolate o'clock <laughs> I have to have my caramello koala at three o'clock in the afternoon so I don't go to sleep no. at my desk <laughs> <laughs> yeah so I think yeah paleo is a great umbrella for looking at well what's actually healthy because some people don't even know 
where do I start? And um, I heard one uh, naturopath discussing people trying to figure out how to deal with the supermarket. Mm. What can I buy in the supermarket? And this practitioner's advice was just shop around the edges yeah. and ignore everything that's in the middle in the aisles. Absolutely. And Unless you need look, toilet paper and tissues. Right. And if you look, well, this is, yeah, the food, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> um, and if you look at what is around the edges, you've got yeah. the fruit and the veg and the fish and the meats and the dairy and the frozen veggies. Um is there anything else? Well, yeah. yeah, frozen frozen berries. We berries, well, yeah, yeah. we can only get um, organic berries at our supermarket if they're frozen. But I think that yeah. that's you know that's fine. That's fine to get those. Yeah. So yeah, all those things in the aisles in the middle mm. are going to be less paleo than what's around the edges. Yeah. Well, they're all processed and they've all got labels that you have to be able to read. And mm. yeah, let's talk about who we are going to be advising paleo for. Um, I find that paleo is a really good starting point for anyone who's got um, someone who's come in and they might have done a stool test and then they're saying, oh, I've got blasto, I've got, I've got Klebsiella, I've got Diantamoeba fragilis, any type of um, parasite. I find that um, going on to a paleo diet approach is far more straightforward for people to be able to follow than, say, for example, a GAPS diet um, or a FODMAP diet and that it works about for, for about 90% of people, it works to be able to cut out the majority of starches to allow for their um, digestive system to recalibrate. That's the majority of um, – that's what I do for people with gut problems. Do you recommend a paleo as an umbrella diet to most people? Sometimes. Not, not most people. What? I do a lot, but not everyone. What, what are the main foods that fall outside of paleo that you would include within a nutritious diet? Rice, organic rice, Yeah, I think can be beneficial. And sometimes I'll say, hey, we're going to do paleo and you're going to have a couple of days a week where you're going to have some rice. And what about the legumes? Legumes, I think, are really – I think you've got to have a really good, solid middle jowl function. I think your middle heat is going to be really, really close to functioning really well to be able to tolerate legumes, particularly, you know, people aren't necessarily going to be soaking them and preparing them themselves – and if you're getting them from a can, then it's, you know, you can't just rinse off mm. all that stuff. Like they create gas and they just stuff, it just creates stagnation in the middle jowl. And so unless you've got a really solid middle heater, then um, I generally advise people to stay away from legumes. I think I, I'm a bit like you in that I would uh, occasionally deviate with legumes or rices and things like that depending on the patient yeah and also attempt to teach them how to activate nuts mm. how to soak properly your legumes and so forth and some people already know yeah you know some people really already know and usually they have a european ancestry or a grandma who's taught them as yeah. well yeah and they do quite well with those in moderation mm. i have a lot of patients who are very time poor and often if they're not already 
quite aware in terms of, you know, what's going on nutritionally that it's too many layers to mm. add and so I just don't even just don't even go there. Yeah. And there's just so many foods that you can eat if you're able to combine a dish together by saying, okay, so two thirds of it is going to be vegetables. Yep. Half of those vegetables are going to be green or leafy green. Yep. And then I'm going to have a tablespoon of a fat and I'm going to have a palm or more size of a protein. Yep. And ta-da, you have this meal. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so there's very little room to need to look for other things that are fillers like rice and or even, you know, pastas and Mm, so forth. Unless you're dealing with, um, especially this is different between men and women, I find a lot of the women don't really need those extra fillers, but some men do, especially athletic men. Mm, Yeah. So they're going to need a lot more carbs. I think from a feeling satisfied and feeling full point of view that women don't necessarily need them, but I think that some women need more carbs than others particularly those who are very blood or yin deficient. Mm. Um, I find that being on a low-carb paleo, um, paleo by default is not low-carb because you're eating, um, you know, really starchy vegetables like sweet potato and, you know, potato is even Mm. considered part of paleo. It's a vegetable. Um, You know, eating fruits and and so forth. And so having a a low-carb paleo is definitely not a good idea for... um, anyone that doesn't have dampness. Yeah, I agree. And everyone usually has a carb load that works for them. Yeah. So I'll do better with one or two baked potatoes a week, Mm -hmm. slathered in butter. I'll actually lose fat more if I have that to the like once or twice. But if I had it four times, then I'd not lose fat and I'd, start to have less energy Mm. and so it can also just be a little bit of experimentation and getting to know your patients and their body types as well to be able to kind of guess what their carb threshold would be and yeah if they're doing all green salads and and fish and avocado then they're probably going to be a little low on the carbs and they need some more like putting carrot in there or like you said have a pumpkin soup Mm. Yeah, sweet potato is much higher in carbs than any mm. other, um, any of the other vegetables. More than white potato? Yep. Well, there you go. I didn't know that. Yep. White potato and pumpkin are, are up there, mm. but not as high as um, sweet potato. Mm. Sweet potato rocks. And it's, you know, got all of the beta carotene in it. It's really good. Mm. Yes. Great. And so um, I would, in terms of which patients I recommend this to, I tend to recommend a healthy, nutritious diet to everybody, Mm. Um, but how much time we spend on it and how important it is or how much I would connect it to their therapeutic results and expectations of results, that that really greatly varies. Mm. But with most things and with Chinese Med, we know the earth feeds the four corners and if their gut and their earth chi is not working well, well, then we really need to work with the diet and just get rid of what's not actually food. Mm. And look, a lot of people, it's so common for me to hear, you know, you ask someone about their diet and they say, oh, I eat really well. And, you know, they're having toast or cereal for breakfast, they're having a sandwich for lunch and they're having, you know, some type of 
you know, they're getting their veggies at dinner time. Mm. They may be having pasta at dinner, you know, a few times a week. Um, but there's just so much white in that diet and there's not much colour. Um, and a paleo diet really challenges those people, particularly at breakfast time. You know, what are they going to have if they're not having their wheat bix or their um, toast for breakfast? And another, another group that I find are really challenged by this are um, people that have young children. I think that there is a um, certainly a lot of perceptions and a lot of advice that gets given to parents of young children about how to introduce solid food to, to their babies and their, um, you know what types of foods to feed to toddlers. And a lot of children end up eating a lot of grain-based foods, a lot of bread, a lot of um, crackers and pastas and there's not much vegetable in there. And um, I, you know, I have I have a child at home, I've got a two-year-old and, um, you know, we've taken a very unconventional approach in that regard and, you know, my daughter very happily eats most things that are put up to her. Um, but it's, yeah, it can be quite challenging particularly if you've got children who are refusing to eat, you know, you cook a nice vegetable soup for them or, you you know, something that's quite nutritious and then they're not eating and parents can get quite distressed and very quickly resort back to the, um, you know, the highly processed foods. And that's a real, that's something that requires a lot of support. Mm. I think it also depends on what the child's been exposed to and what they've tasted. Mm outside of the home but usually all of that's actually begun in the home because they're not really exposed to a lot of food outside of home when they're that young that they're first starting to eat foods well and their flavors are um are shaped by what they're exposed to in utero as well Mm. the baby's taste buds taste what's in the mother's bloodstream and so what a mother eats during her pregnancy will also have an effect on her child's taste preferences as it grows and what she's eating when she's um, when she's breastfeeding. Um, and so, you know, your patients who are taking Chinese herbs during the pregnancy and during breastfeeding, their babies might have a little bit of a head start in that regard. But I think it's just, you know, it's whatever is introduced to the child, they become accustomed to those tastes. Mm. Um, and so if you as a family have a generally you know, diverse and nutrient-rich diet that your child will naturally have a preference for those foods. Mm. And so when we look at the many different ways that you can eat paleo, Mm. you know, you've got the people who really just do heaps of red meat. Yeah. And then you've got the people like me that are mostly um, grain-free, mostly vegetable, plant-based, and then I add in butter, ghee, sometimes cheese, uh, chicken and fish. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah. Um, and that really works well for me. And it also works well for me according to what I've learned about food and nutrition. Um, so I wanted to bring up a little bit of info that people might want to Google about a food a chemical that has been discovered to be in red meat and some other animal products and it's called NEU5GC and it is a glycan that has been discovered in a lot of animal products that causes inflammation 
And when I looked at this list of foods and which animal products contained it and caused more inflammatory reaction in the body and which animal product foods didn't contain it, it just happened to match my diet really well. And so that was information that I liked looking into. I'm sorry I can't tell you much more about it because I don't know it well enough to actually discuss it or teach it, but I think it's something really great that you might want to look up if you're interested in what's going on with animal products and inflammation in the body. Mm. Yeah. There's definitely um, a lot of people do have less inflammatory symptoms if they reduce or eliminate red meat from their diet. Mm. Yeah. Um, or, you know, just have it every now and then. Have it once or twice a month, and if you are having it, then making sure that your animal products are from an organic, certified organic or biodynamic source. Yeah, definitely. And then when it comes to how do we organise the vegetable component of the diet, I really like the mitochondrial diets approach. So this one is how to feed your mitochondria, and it's very paleo. Uh, and basically it involves nine cups of vegetables a day. So that is a, a culinary measuring cup. And you want three of them to be leafy greens, three of them to be green vegetables that are non-leafy greens. Um, so that would include like your... Um, Cucumber and celery and... Zucchini, broccoli, snow peas, all those, uh, anything that's green. And then three of them are going to be coloured your coloured vegetables, so all your capsicums and carrots and all the rest. So this is also a way to advise to make sure that people aren't just saying, yeah, I eat heaps of vegetables because they have chips, hot chips every day. <laughs> <laughs> um, because you really do need a high proportion of the leafy greens that they're so healing for the body in so many ways mm. and so nutritious. Yeah. Let's let's talk about a refinement of the paleo diet, the autoimmune paleo. This is something that um, I've started to use a lot more with my patients in the last couple of years. Um, I've had some patients with some really tricky, um, some really tricky presentations going on. Um, people who are coming in saying, "I can't eat anything." People who have got really outrageous autoimmune diseases going on, um, psoriatic arthritis, Graves' disease, Hashimoto's. Um, a lot of thyroid. Yeah, a lot of thyroid stuff. And um, I'm finding that doing a short-term autoimmune paleo, like a burst of autoimmune paleo, can really quickly help to reset a lot of those antibodies um, back into um, lower level and so what what you're doing with autoimmune paleo is that so you're removing grains and you're removing legumes a la the mainstream paleo approach but then you're also in addition to that removing some of the common allergens so you're removing nightshades you're removing salicylates you're removing foods that are high in amines and so um, people are then having a much shorter list of foods that they're um, oh, and also removing nuts and eggs. So you're removing the foods that are going to be most likely upsetting their immune system. And you're doing it for a short period of time. Well, some people do it for long periods of time. Mm -hmm. I don't recommend, unless you've got a very good reason, 
Mm. I don't recommend doing it for a long period of time because it can very quickly disrupt um, the yin and the blood. Um, you have to be very careful of doing it longer than a month. And even for um, people with an existing yin or blood deficiency, you need to be quite careful. It can be very drying um, to do autoimmune paleo. Um, but it does very quickly bring down those antibodies so that you can then um, focus more on, um, you know, working out as they're reintroducing foods, if they might have a reaction that's going on. Um, if you're going to be doing any kind of um, strict elimination diet such as this, I think it's always useful to be looking for clues as you're reintroducing foods back in to, um, to see if there's any foods that you have reacted to. Sometimes you don't realise as you've removed them, but you realise as you reintroduce them back in and doing them one at a time, a few days apart, um, can help to identify if there's any that you should remove more longer term. But that's that's autoimmune paleo. It's There's a lot of resources that are out there now that does leave you with a lot more restrictions around what you might be able to have, um, you know, particularly for breakfasts. Um, but, you know, generally you're coming back to the same principles of you're having vegetables, you're having a little bit of fruit, you're having some fish or chicken. Um, and so if you're eating a fairly clean diet, then, um, then it's not too difficult. If you're looking at trying to manufacture some kind of autoimmune paleo muesli or autoimmune paleo bread substitute, then you'd probably be very sad <laughs> uh, and feel like you're you know that you've lost a significant other <laughs> but um yeah I mean generally I'm doing it with my patients for just a very short period of time so it's a 30-day challenge that I set mm. for them so basically it is a food challenge within the paleo structure that's the way that I use it yeah yeah yep. yeah and um yeah that seems really useful Obviously, there'll be certain foods that will definitely come up out of that. But yeah, there's um, there's some food lists, um, and we'll put them up in the show notes. But there's a um, there's quite a useful avoid this food list and eat these foods list um, that you can work from. And so, I wanted to ask you also. Then I know there's a few factors to consider for someone that has hypothyroid mm. in terms of what types of vegetables to focus on and which foods are not thyroid friends. Yes. You, can you list some of those for us? Yeah, so the foods that are generally high in thiocyanates, um, and again we'll put a list up on the on the show notes of the complete list, but it does include foods like strawberries, peaches, as well as, um, you know, the brassicas um, and a few other um, associated plants um, and generally you want to try not to have too many of them and you want to have them cooked so cooking deactivates the majority of the effects of the thiocyanates and essentially what that does is it interferes with normal thyroid function it's not something that you necessarily want to do if you've got hyperthyroid it's not like treating your thyroid as the enemy and you just kind of obliterate it with you know having 12 kale smoothies a day um, that um, you, you need, regardless of whether your thyroid's over or under functioning, you need to befriend your thyroid, particularly when the majority of thyroid disease is autoimmune related. 
And so um, anything that's going to anger or upset the normal function of the thyroid is going to um, risk increasing the antibody activity that's going mm. on. So keeping away from the, um, from the thyroid baddies in addition to doing the autoimmune paleo can um, make the food list a little bit different and a little bit more restricted. But as um, as I said before, I only, I only use it for a very short period of time mm. in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, and so I think that's really useful as well um, because we're in soon, and probably in the next episode, we're going to get onto discussing raw versus cooked and how to make those kinds of decisions. Mm. And that also really depends on what you're what nutrients you need and what you're trying to avoid from within foods that are generally healthy. So that brassicas group, you know, there's your broccoli and your kale and they're really healthy foods Mm. that we want a lot of people to eat. Um, But they they do behave quite differently in the body, raw versus steamed. And knowing that um, can really help people from also not just strictly only having it made one way and perhaps getting a good balance of... Mm sometimes raw sometimes steamed and in this season maybe I'll have it more raw and in that season maybe I'll have it more steamed or when I'm feeling a particular way yeah when my thyroid's doing a certain thing thing (laughs) yeah uh because you know there are a lot of people in Melbourne in particular in Australia and uh, probably other locations where hypothyroid or slightly sluggish thyroid function is Mm. just so prevalent yeah. Look, we've, we put so much fluoride into our water um, that obviously interferes with the way the body's going to be able to use and store iodine. Um, we don't put iodine in our foods anymore. We used to rinse out milk vats with iodine and now we don't. We use some other kind of chemical, mm. which ends up in trace amounts in dairy products. Um, you know, we're doing all kinds of things that interfere with thyroid function, gluten, interferes with thyroid function, increases thyroid peroxidase antibodies. So the TPO antibodies, if you ever see those elevated in any of your patients, they need to get off gluten and they need to stay off gluten. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but there's a lot of there's a lot of thyroid problems in Melbourne. Mm. We are going to do an episode on thyroid yes. uh, where we go into those those chemicals that can show up in the water supply as well. Yeah. And iodine and how that's relevant and things that you can do as part of your acupuncture treatments mm. as well. Yeah. And herbs. Um, so you also mentioned in the autoimmune paleo removing the salicylate food group, the nightshade group, because mm. uh, a lot of people react to those, and um, the amines, which I think leads us. Are we ready to move on? To yes. The, yeah. the histamine and the tyramine diets. So histamine basically is your kind of allergic, snotty hives. Hay fever. Hay fever. Sneezy. Eczema, yeah. It's this, those people have got a lot of histamine running around in their blood. Um, people who feel a little sneezy or itchy after having red wine. That's a histamine reaction. And so your body does use histamine and your body um, usually is able to break down histamine through an enzyme which I think is great to talk about in Chinese medicine because it's the Dao enzyme, (laughs) D-A-O. 
Um, and diamine oxidase. Yeah, but I just think it's beautiful that if you're not really flowing with the Tao, you're going to be more reactive and yeah. you're going to have high histamine and your body's going to be more reactive too. Yeah. And I have a history with um, – I got into Chinese medicine because I used to be allergic to everything. And I remember this day where things had started to turn around and uh, there were many things I did to contribute to things turning around with Chinese medicine and elimination diets and so forth. And there was a circumstance whereby I was in the laundry and the lid of the, some laundry powder created a, a puff of, of powder chemical right in my face. And normally that would be enough to give me respiratory issues like hay fever and asthma for about two weeks. And in this moment, I've been really working with my ability to flow with the Tao and meditate and breathe. And I stepped away and I breathed calmly. And it was the first time that I was able to use my harmony with the Tao to prevent my body's massive histamine reaction. Mm. So anyway, you can get Tao as a, a supplement too. But histamine foods are really relevant for a lot of patients. So um, I usually start with removing just the, the, hist the foods that are high in histamine, and often that's enough. Mm. Um, so those are alcohol, pickled foods like sauerkrauts, canned foods, really matured cheeses like your aged cheddar, um, smoked meat products, salami, ham, sausages, things like that, shellfish. Uh, a lot of the beans, pulses, legumes that we were discussing earlier mm. that are in the paleo, not in the paleo umbrella. Um, some nuts, walnuts, cashews, chocolate mm. can trigger histamine and vinegars and pre-processed meals and really salty or processed snacks and sweets with lots of preservatives and colorings. Yeah. Um, I mean, really, when you're talking about people who've got um, problems with histamine, is in general, from a from a Chinese medicine point of view, there's a problem with their yin. Yeah. And it's either a lung and or a liver yin problem. And so um, I will often, well, if, if someone has very severe symptoms and they're coming in, you know, it's right in the middle of springtime, for example, and they're, they're really suffering, they're you know, they might be taking lots of antihistamines, um, but I will often get them to do this, the low histamine diet whilst I'm working with acupuncture and, and herbal medicine to, um, to support the yin and to, um, and to reduce the, the liberation of histamine. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and I have a, a couple of patients as well um, working with the, the Dow supplement. Mm -hmm. uh, so you can actually get this as a supplement to really help in patients where the histamine is just going crazy. I would definitely consider using this. And the only supplement available in the world is actually sourced from pig dow. Mm. Um, but if people are not eating pork or don't want that, they can actually sprout snow peas in the dark. Mm. And then you just in the dark room with the curtains closed and then if you chop off your daily bit and put that in a little baggie and keep it in a drawer uh, or somewhere. It does have to be in the dark. So I found that really interesting as well. Mm. But just having a handful of those sprouts before the meal or the supplement before the meal can really help people who are just reacting so crazy to everything and you, and you just need a starting place. You need to um, break down that histamine in the body. And that's what the Tao 
enzyme does in the body, its job is to break down histamine. Mm. So if people have a dysfunction there, uh, which can happen genetically, then they're just going to have all these levels of histamine. All the histamine that's produced in their body runs around without being broken down properly. Mm. One thing that I will say is that um, antihistamines, they reduce the amount of diamine oxidized, so they reduce the amount of Dow that your body can produce. So wow. you become deficient in Dow by taking antihistamines. So it is crucial to get your patients that have histamine problems to get them off the antihistamines. And if they need something really strong, super strong, and, um, you know, the herbs and the acupuncture are taking a little bit too long to work, then the Dow capsules yeah. can be useful. But generally I've found that acupuncture and herbal medicine plus the diet changes affect really quick change. Yeah. And I haven't needed to use the Dow um supplements with any of my patients but i know fee that you've got some really super tricky patients that you've needed to work with yeah and that's that's also because i'm working with the genetics now as well which we're going to do another episode on so this topic will come up again um but if you actually have a broken gene that means you're not producing dow well then that can be really helpful Mm -hmm. yeah and you find the yin tonics aren't useful in those patients? Definitely useful. They would be my, my first port of call is always the Chinese herbs and the acupuncture and the, the foods, the real foods. And then beyond that, and it's usually just to, for when you need to get people out of the woods. Yeah. If they come and they're really in trouble or they're really going through, you know, if they're grieving or some big stressful event is mm. happening in their life, they're getting retrenched and then they're covered in hives all the time, even though they're doing all the right things, that's when you really need something else. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then uh, just a couple of minutes on the tyramine. Mm, I think this is your area of expertise. <laughs> Unfortunately, I discovered because of headaches. So tyramine and reducing high tyramine foods is really useful for people with lots of headaches and migraines. Mm. A lot of people, not everybody, but a lot of people that have migraines do a lot better without foods that are high in tyramine. Mm. And it's really being part of the amine family. It's a similar list of foods to the histamines. You can look it up, but you've also got your aged cheddars, um, cacao and chocolate, red wines, and the fermented foods mm. yeah. are high in tyramine. Um, and so it brings up some interesting thoughts as well in terms of the – the popularity of eating a lot of fermented foods mm. now. It's not know. good for everyone. No, having sauerkraut all the time and having your kefir, whatever. And and your kombucha going Three in the times corner. a day kombucha. <laughs> and kombucha, let's not forget, is actually a yeast, even though it produces probiotics. Mm. It's a bit of a glorified yeast drink. Yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, just to be aware that the whole fermented food movement is not going to suit everybody especially those that tend towards um the histamines and the tyramine either headaches or inflammatory reactions yeah and i think look most of this stuff really comes down to having good solid middle heater function right um but it just takes a long time you know people who are coming to see you that have got problems with histamines or problems with tyramines they've had this war going on in their gut for a long time and there's just so many layers of chi dysfunction 
within their body, it can take a long time to unravel that before that it might be possible for them to be able to have fermented foods and it might be possible for them to be able to have, you know, cacao without consequence. Mm, cacao without consequence. And I think that's also where it comes in that dealing with any diet stuff, if I'm working with someone from the get-go, they've got phlegm, they've got um, emotional ups and downs, they've got strong food cravings or their gut's just a mess, usually I'd start with a goo protocol anyway mm. so that I know what kind of bacteria is in there. Yeah. Let's just get in there and wipe out the bad guys and replenish with the good guys and then we look at these diets because your compliance is going to be a lot better when you're not actually – when you're working with good gut bacteria, mm. there's far less foods that you're going to need to remove. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. So we do have an upcoming episode on goo protocol as well with a very special guest. And I think that's as much as we've gotten through today. Yeah, we didn't get to the ketogenic diet, but we promise we will get to it next time. Yeah. And as well as the other uh, the other topics that we've promised. So the fruit is- lymph cleanse, vegetarian, vegan or meat, organic or not, to carb or not to carb, raw or cooked foods. Uh, so we'll be going through or attempting to get through all of those in um, part three. Yes. But that's all we have time for today. We, re- we would really love to hear your thoughts and feedback. Um, what do you do with paleo with your patients? What do you think about paleo? Do you think it's a load of crap? <laughs> we would love to know your thoughts. Tell us on our Facebook page and join the conversation. Thanks for listening. See you soon.